Today's scripture is 1 Peter 2:18 through 3:7. Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if, because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that, having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that, if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live, when they observe your pure, reverent lives. Don't let your beauty consist of outward things, like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Thank you, Erica, for reading that passage. My name is uh, Darian Lockett. I'm an elder here at the church, and... Uh, over the summer, our pastor, Eric Kapoor, is on sabbatical, so he has been out with us this summer, and Paul Kim has been our um, interim pastor over the summer, and uh, I'm filling in for the fill-in uh, this morning. Uh, but I, I'm thinking about sabbatical, so Eric, our pastor, is on sabbatical. This is my last Sunday uh, before my sabbatical. I'm taking a sabbatical uh, at the university, and I'll be gone for three months and um, I'm, I'm flying to Scotland for some of those uh, three months, and uh, I'm excited about that. So if you don't see me around, it's, it's not because we've left. It's because I'm on sabbatical. Um, a few weeks ago, I, I preached, and we looked at First Peter, uh, and especially about how he, under, or how he helps us understand uh, how to live out our new identity in Christ. Um, he... Peter addresses some specific ways in which we live out this new identity, this new reality of Christ, both in our lives and in society in general. Now, maybe if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you might remember that Peter calls his audience, his readers, he calls them aliens and strangers. Uh, he calls them elect exiles. Uh, and this is because throughout the first two chapters of the letter, Peter is telling his audience about their new identity. He says that we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. We are given an inheritance that will never perish or grow old. We are guarded by God's power. We have been redeemed from an empty way of life. We are like newborn infants that desire the pure milk of the word. Now, because these things are true of Christians, because these things are true of us, uh, Peter calls us elect exiles, and our new identity in Christ then reshuffles uh, the layers of our identity such that everything is different. Um, the new reality of God's kingdom has changed everything. And, and one way Peter specifically addresses how we live out this new identity in Christ is in the area of politics, and this is what we talked about a couple weeks ago when we read the first section of this passage. 
This morning, we're going to keep looking at this passage, and we're going to see two more specific ways that Peter talks about living out our new identity in Christ, uh, in society in particular, and he's going to talk about slavery and marriage. Now, I'm not saying that marriage is slavery. That's not what Peter is saying. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, But Peter is addressing these two issues of slavery and marriage. So if you weren't interested in the sermon, you're interested now. (laughs) I know this sounds, well, really bad. Um, Peter addresses slaves and wives in the same section. And what I have to say is, unfortunately, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, But stay with me. Uh, Hold on. Uh, The first point in my sermon, which I'm not getting, I'm not there yet, but I'm coming to in a moment, is that our new identity in Christ, Peter teaches us, does not necessarily erase relationships or social situations that we're in when we come to faith. Um, That is, let me try to explain that a little bit more, that is when someone becomes a Christian, when someone receives this new identity in Christ, that person will experience the transformation that the gospel brings. There is new life. Uh, Old ways of thinking and acting are transformed. But with the change in life and identity, Peter argues that many of the old social relationships, many of the old ways, uh, uh, old relationships and old situations that we were a part of can and often should be maintained. Though we've been transformed and we have a new identity in Christ, we still live in this world. We still live in the social situations we found ourselves in when Christ came to us. I might work my same job, etc., So, for Peter's first century context, the prime examples of social relationships that weren't erased are those of slavery and marriage, slaves and wives. Now, I already know perhaps what you're thinking. Um, It might be reasonable that those who are already wives, when they become Christians, that they should remain married. In other words, uh, two people aren't following Jesus, but they're already married. One of them becomes a Christian, and it seems reasonable that new believer should stay married, even though the marriage partner is not a believer. That makes sense in many cases. However, it might be troubling or even offensive that Peter also instructs slaves that when they become Christians, that they also should remain obedient to their masters. Perhaps this is troubling. Perhaps it raises questions. It sounds like the Bible tacitly supports slavery, but it gets worse. Not only is Peter arguing that slaves who become Christians should remain obedient to their masters, he argues that they should submit to cruel masters who mistreat them, punishing them for what they do, what right things that they do. Then Peter also instructs wives who are married to non-believing husbands to not only remain married to them, but to submit to them, even though they're not believers. All right, okay, so this actually raises a lot of hard questions. Um, and let me acknowledge something before we move forward, and I want to like, say this carefully. Let me acknowledge that it's a sermon like this, teaching on topics uh, like slavery and marriage that could lead people to question the relevance of Christianity in the modern world. There has been a growing number of people who have deconstructed their faith. Have you heard this phrase before? This is a phenomenon in the church that's been happening for a while now. Deconstruction is when someone comes to a point where uh, they start to deconstruct their notion of church or church membership or being a part of organized religion, being in a setting like this. And so deconstruction could mean for some Uh, leaving evangelicalism, maybe not leaving the church, but leaving evangelicalism. That's a certain kind of faith in Christ. Or it it could be a deconstruction even of the church. Uh, No longer would this person go to church or affiliate with organized religion or a group of people named the church. Deconstruction goes all the way as well, though, to the point of 
leaving the faith completely, deconstructing to the point where not only someone's left evangelicalism or left the church, but they've left the faith completely. And I realized that it's because of maybe issues like this, these really difficult issues sometimes that people become very dissatisfied with the church or dissatisfied with the faith. So let me ask everyone to hang on uh, with me, hang in there with me uh, for a little bit uh, before you draw conclusions. And, and if you're here this morning and you are not a believer, you're not a follower of Jesus, you're here uh, asking questions, you're interested and curious, let me just say I'm so glad that you're here. You belong here. This is a place to listen, to ask questions, to interact, and even belong. Um, but especially you, if you're here and you're not a believer and you're asking questions about Christianity, let me ask you especially to wait before you draw conclusions about how backwards and repressive Christianity might be. Uh, hang in there with me a bit. Okay, so if I haven't got your attention yet, you're asleep. Uh, or not interested. Let me tell you, here are the three things that I want to talk about. Here are the three points of the sermon. And let me just warn you ahead of time, the first point is long, and then the second and third points are shorter. But the first point, there's a good bit of explaining about slavery and, and uh, marriage in the first century that I need to do. So here are the three points. Uh, they'll appear on the screen as we move through them. First, new identity in Christ does not mean that previous social relationships are erased even if, or perhaps because, they lead to innocent suffering. So, first point, when we become Christians, that doesn't mean all the relationships that we had before are erased, and it doesn't mean all the social situations that we are in uh, are erased, um, because even if that now causes suffering, sometimes that, that's God's will. Like, God is accomplishing something in that. So that's point number one. Point number two, second, New identity means following the example of Christ's innocent suffering. That's part of what this passage is talking about. Christ has given us an example, and the example he's given us is a life where he suffered innocently. And that's a life that Christians are called to. That's pretty sober. But third, which is the really good news, new identity is only possible because in Jesus' innocent suffering, he accomplishes redemption for us. It's in Christ's innocent suffering on our behalf that we are enabled to live out our new identity even in difficult circumstances. Okay, so those are the three points. Let me return to this first point, uh, that new identity in Christ does not mean that previous social relationships are erased, even when they lead to difficulty or challenge. Okay, let me make two points here. We are looking at a section of 1 Peter that is called a household code. Um, just a moment before, uh, Erica read from verses 18 through into chapter 3. Uh, but I might cheat a little bit here and talk about a passage just before this. So in your bulletin, you've got verse 18. But if you have your Bible, starting all the way in verse 13, uh, this, that's part of the section. Peter is... Uh, using what is called a household code. And um, let me describe what that is. A household code is very common in Greco-Roman literature. Uh, so Aristotle, Plato, they would use this structure called a household code. And it, it, it is what it sounds like. The author starts to talk about the household and he addresses different people in the household. Husbands do this, this, and this, and this. Um, Wives do this, this, and this. Children do this, this, and this. Um, the idea is that it's a household code where different people of the household are addressed. Now, in Greco, and we see household codes throughout the New Testament. Here in 1 Peter, we see one in Colossians, we see one in Ephesians. So it's a common feature in the New Testament as well. Now, the Greeks and the Romans believed that the order and structure of the house was connected to the order and the structure of the city, which was also connected to the order and the structure of the universe. So if the home is well-ordered and there are good relationships, that is good news for the city, which is good news for the gods as well. So that's a very Greco-Roman idea. But 
it's important to know that Christians also believed that the order of the home is connected to order in society and order in the world as well. But the key difference is, for Christians, the order of the house is created by God and ordered by him, not the ways of Greco-Roman society. So Peter uses this common way of speaking in the Greco-Roman world, a household code, and he uses it to communicate something about his reader's new identity, right? Uh, this is a way of communicating. But I want to be clear about this. Uh, Peter does not use this Greco-Roman household code uh, because he endorses or agrees with the Greco-Roman ideas that stand behind it, uh, namely how a house should be structured, how husbands should act, uh, etc. What's really important to stress here is that Peter is communicating to his audience in a way that they would understand. And he's using something familiar. But in using this thing that is familiar, it doesn't mean that he's endorsing the ideas, the values that lie behind this household structure. So to be very clear, though Peter talks about slavery, that does not mean he is endorsing the institution of slavery. Now, this is hard because he also talks about marriage. Does Peter not endorse the institution of marriage? Well, let me just say it this way. Peter is addressing a Greco-Roman version of marriage that he actually doesn't endorse. Okay, so the, the first idea there is notice that Peter is using a household code. It's a way of communicating. Um, and, and we'll say more about this as we move forward. The, the other thing that I want to say before we look at the passage on slaves and the passage on wives is, and this is where, the, uh, where it gets worse, um, Peter is actually drawing a line between slaves and wives. Uh, if you can advance to the next slide, I want you to see how this passage is structured. You also see this in your bulletin. Um, so Peter is using a way of organizing his letter. Um, we would be accustomed to an author using paragraphs, and the use of a paragraph is helping you figure out a unit of thought and then another unit of thought as a paragraph. Well, ancient peoples didn't use paragraphs, um, but they used a structure like you see on the screen. This is called a chiasm. It's a way of organizing material so that you, the reader, can follow the flow of thought. And what I want you to see in the structure of this section of 1 Peter is uh, the chiasm works like this. Um, the very first line and the very last line um, are mirrored images of each other. So if you notice chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, is instruction to the whole community to submit to mm, those in political authority. But the very last section of the passage is also talking to the entire community. Do you see how those two sections parallel each other? Okay, then you move one section in and you've got slaves, and the parallel to slaves is wives. And then in the very center of this structure, notice it's something about Jesus. So the use of this type of structure uh, communicates to you, the reader, that the most important part of this passage, um, you can already shout it out, right? It's Jesus, right? That's the most important part of this passage. But there are examples on either side of Jesus uh, that, that, that Peter is addressing. So not only is this a Greco-Roman household code, Peter has arranged it so that we see slaves and wives are related to each other. And that's clear not only in the structure, but also in how Peter talks to slaves and wives. Both slaves and wives are to submit. They are both to submit because it is pleasing or it finds favor with God. And also, they're both given motivation, actually the same motivation to submit. So there are all kinds of ways that slaves and wives are connected. Now, are there enough problems in the room to deal with? <laughs> not only is slavery an issue, not only is there a cultural issue that Peter is dealing with in terms of using a household code, but now I'm saying that Peter is drawing slaves and wives together, thinking about how they're similar. Okay, with that bit of context in mind, let's look specifically at what Peter says first to slaves and then to wives. Look at verses 18 through 20. 
Uh, you can see this in your handout, your bulletin. Household slaves, submit your, to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if, because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong, you are beaten and you endure it? But when you do good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor to God. Okay, so notice in this passage that Peter instructs Christian slaves to remain submitted to their masters. And the question that's in our minds, why? Why would Peter, why would Peter do this? Why would he instruct them to continue to be submissive, even in a context that is dangerous to them, where they're suffering innocently? Why would Peter command slaves to remain submitted in, an evil, in the evil uh, social institution of slavery? As I'm trying to answer that, let me, let me make some observations. First, the, uh, the very fact that Peter addresses slaves at all is already countercultural. In Aristotle and Plato, as they would write a household code, they would never address a slave. Be- because a slave is actually not part of the house. A slave is an object of the house. Uh, so, so Peter is already doing something countercultural. He is addressing someone in Greco-Roman society who doesn't matter. And not only is he addressing the slave, but he's addressing the slave first, uh, which is important. Okay, so Peter direct, directly addresses slaves as part of the household. As I just mentioned, slaves were not usually addressed in household codes. Rather, they were usually mentioned as property of the master. In a household list that Aristotle gives, he describes slaves as human chattel, the possession of their masters. If anyone would be addressed in a household code, it would be the master. But notice in our list here in 1 Peter, masters are not addressed. Peter directly addresses Christian slaves and instructs them to submit. That is, slaves are directly addressed as having moral agency. Peter addresses a slave as if they have a choice, and he addresses the slave as if they have moral agency. Do you know what I mean by that? He's, he's uh, approaching the slave and communicating with the slave, knowing that that slave is a human being, and that as a human being, a free human being in Christ, they need to make a choice about their situation. Uh, and Peter is saying, I want you to make the choice to submit. Notice the slave's submission is not extracted from the slave. Submission is not beaten out of the slave. It's willingly given. And Peter is saying to the slave, this this is what I'm calling you to do. The reason for the slave's submission is not because the master is good or kind or worthy. Peter argues that the slave should submit not only to good and gentle masters, but especially to the cruel ones. The reason for the submission is not because the master demands it or extracts it. The reason for the submission is not because of social convention or custom. No, slaves are to submit because of consciousness of God. Or the ESV translates that, being mindful of God. The slave's reverence for God is his motivation for submitting to his wicked master. Now let that sink in for a minute. The motivation is reverence to God. It's not social convention. It's not what I'm supposed to do in society. It's not the Greco-Roman list. It's this new reality that I've encountered in Christ that makes me reconfigure how I act in the world. And this is not going to make sense to the world around me. This is what Peter is saying to the slaves. And as a result of the slaves' submission... He uh, endures grief from suffering unjustly, but what, what results? He brings favor to God or pleasure to God. Look at verse 20 again. Peter says in verse 20, for what credit is, is there if when you do wrong, you are beaten? If you, uh, if you uh, drive, I don't know, down Tustin Boulevard at 100 miles an hour and you get pulled over by a cop and, and the cop is writing you this big fat ticket and you say, help, help, I'm being repressed, this is not fair. Well, no, you've broken the law. You've done something wrong. You are paying the just penalty of your actions, right? But Peter is envisioning a situation where you're driving the speed limit 
and some evil cop pulls you over and writes you a big fat ticket. And Peter is saying, yes, yes, in that moment, endure, and it brings glory to God. That's hard. How can Peter say that innocent suffering of a slave at the hands of a wicked master, how can he say that that pleases God? Guys, let's be honest. Doesn't that sound a little morally reprehensible? Doesn't that sound objectionable? That innocent suffering should please God? Now, let's be really clear. Peter is not talking about the innocent suffering of children who have no choice. Um, Peter is actually, and let me, I'm going to say it now, I'm going to say it later too. When we talk about wives, Peter is not addressing the modern situation of spousal abuse in in the home. Are you following what I'm saying? So this passage that we just read has been abused in the Christian church, in the history of the church, where men would argue from this passage that women should stay within an abusive relationship. That is wrong. And I'm going to argue that's not what Peter is talking about. You follow me there? So when we talk about innocent suffering, Peter's not talking about the suffering of a child. He's not talking about, you know, a, a spousal abuse kind of situation. He's talking about a situation where somebody has um, some degree of choice and that when they do what is right, they, they suffer for doing what is right. And when they meet that moment of suffering for doing what is right with great patience, there's glory given to God. Something is accomplished in that. Okay? Let, look at the wives now. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Notice we're skipping a section of the text, but... Peter has already said, look, wives and slaves are kind of connected to each other here. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way. In the same way as what? Well, that relates right back to chapter 2, verse 18. In the same way as household slaves. In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live. When they observe your pure reverent lives. And then he goes on to explain more. Peter's instructions to Christian wives mirrors the instructions that he has given to Christian slaves. He says, in the same way, submit yourselves. That's not the only similarity. Let me draw out some more. Just like slaves, Peter directly addresses wives. Now, we have household codes from Greco-Romans that addressed wives. But usually wives are addressed as not having a choice, because in Greco-Roman marriage, a woman was completely subservient to her husband. She had no choice. She had no autonomy. She had no freedom. In fact, let me just describe this. Uh, Paul Actemeyer, in his commentary on First Peter, describes what a first-century woman uh, in a Greco-Roman marriage uh, would be seen as. He says this, because the woman lacked the capacity for reason that the male had, she was ruled by her emotions. She was given to poor judgment, immorality, intemperance. She was untrustworthy, contentious, and as a result, it was her place to obey. Women could not vote, could not hold office, could not be the legal guardian of their own minor children, and they were legally dependent on either their father or a guardian. This is the context in which the, the woman who is married to a Greco-Roman man, but she has become a Christian, this is the context in which she now is, uh, married to a, a Roman man. So the fact that Peter addresses wives and addresses them as having moral agency is already totally countercultural. They are morally responsible for their choice to submit, and their submission is not extracted from them, but again, rather willingly. Like we saw with the slaves, the reason the wives are to submit is not because of their husband, not because of social peer pressure, not because of custom, not because of the you know, kindness of the husband, but rather the wife's reverence for God is her motivation for submitting to her husband, regardless of whether the husband is harsh or kind or even a Christian. Again, I hope this is clear, but notice in verse 1, 
Submit yourselves to your own husbands so that even if some disobey the word. That little phrase there, disobey the word, Peter uses that elsewhere in chapter 2, verse 8, to describe someone who is not a believer. So um, I, I teach at a local university, and uh, it's a Christian school, so I have Christian students in class, and, and they get excited when we go through First Peter because a lot of the students at my college are interested in getting married, um, so that's interesting. Uh, but, but I warn them, guys, this is not a marriage manual for Christians, okay? Beware of First Peter chapter 3 because the kind of situation that it, it at least initially envisions is this difficult situation where a Christian is married to a non-Christian. And so all this um, communication about being quiet and about being careful uh, is is in a context where the wife has very few rights. What's the result of the wife's submission? It's the same as the slaves. Peter argues that submitting to a non-believing husband is of great worth in God's sight. Verse 4. At the end of the passage, Peter encourages Christian wives to Uh, to do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. And that might be the intimidation that comes from society or from her non-believing husband. The fact that Christian wives are instructed to do good and not fear any intimidation suggests that even when doing the right thing, Christian wives might still suffer innocently. So do you see that connection? Christian slaves and Christian wives are similar in that they are both in a precarious situation socially. They are both called to submit. They are both called to submit out of reverence for God so that he is pleased even in the event that they are experiencing innocent suffering. Wives and slaves in this context are in a vulnerable position They, out of anyone else in the community that Peter writes to, would be open to the potential of suffering and unjust treatment at the hands of their masters or their unbelieving husbands. Neither slaves nor wives had any social or political power or status that could protect them in this context. It's not like a slave could just run away and get a job somewhere. Uh, Do you know what happened to a Greco-Roman slave who ran away? He's killed instantly upon apprehension. How to, why, why couldn't the wife just move out of the house and you know, buy her own place and get a job? Women weren't able to hold a job or own property most of the time in the ancient world. Do you see what I'm saying? So Peter is talking to these people knowing they have very few options. It would be like, imagine yourself, like a little thought experiment. Imagine that you live in a rural, remote, uh, uh, poor uh, area of some country. And there's one major, I don't know, factory in town where everybody works and, and you have a large family and you're the only one that can work. And so you work at this, this factory to care for your family. But it's like the only option. There aren't other places to work. But the foreman of the factory is unjust. He's manipulative. He doesn't pay you well enough. It doesn't fix the problem just to say, well, go get another job. That actually is not an option. Peter is addressing people in that kind of situation. It's not an option just to go do something else. So Peter is addressing folks, saying, how do you live out your new identity in Christ in these difficult, compromised relationships and social situations? What I want to highlight in this structure is, notice who is closest to Jesus. Wives and slaves are right next to Jesus in this household list, in these examples. And I think that's intentional. Why? Because wives and slaves are putting on display the experience of Jesus. In other words, those people in the community that are experiencing something a lot like what Jesus experienced, innocent suffering, are specifically wives and slaves. And I think Peter is saying, church, look at these two examples. Look at wives. Look at slaves. Look at how they are living their lives, their new identity out in Christ in these difficult situations. This is what all of us should take stock of. This is how all of us should be challenged to think about how do we live out our identity in Christ. 
despite the innocent suffering that both wives and slaves might experience in this context, um, I, I come back to that question. What about innocent suffering? Why is it that God would call wives and slaves to this kind of difficult situation? Why is innocent suffering pleasing to God? Here's where the gospel story helps us. The only thing that makes sense of innocent suffering is the innocent suffering of Christ himself. Follow me here into the second point. New identity means, that following, means following Jesus' example of innocent suffering. Look at verses 21 through 23. This is the very middle of the section that we saw before. This is the main point that Peter wants to make. Look at the example of Jesus. He has just talked to, to slaves and has said, look, you need to submit, even if that submission leads to innocent suffering. Verse 21, for, here's the reason why I'm telling slaves what I'm telling them to do, for you were called to this. And, and in verse 21, when Peter says you were called to this, he's not just talking about you slaves, he's talking about you, all Christians in the community. You were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Let, let me stop there. Uh, we'll continue thinking about the example of Jesus here, but especially those first few verses, 21 through 23, Peter is, is stressing the idea that Jesus gives us an example. This is how your new identity should look. It should look like Christ's. And, and look at the things that Peter highlights in Jesus' experience. Verse 22, he did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Do you, do you hear a little echo in that phrase, no deceit was found in his mouth. Uh, one of the reflection quotes that was uh, at the beginning of the service was um, Isaiah 53. And here, Peter is reading the prophet Isaiah. And he's thinking about the suffering servant. And, and Peter is using the language of Isaiah 53 in the suffering servant to describe Jesus. And in this instance, he's describing Jesus as the ultimate innocent one. If anybody has experienced innocent suffering, if anyone has done what is right and suffered for it, it's Jesus. He himself had no deceit found in his mouth. He did not sin. Verse 23, when he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. This is something else Peter is highlighting about Jesus' experience. Um, sorry to be a nerd, but the Greek language here is stressing that when Jesus, uh, verse 23, when Jesus was insulted and when he kept on being insulted over and over and over and over again, that's what the Greek verbal tense is stressing, he did not return verbal abuse over and over and over again. Guys, have you ever been at work? And, well, okay, yes, you've been at work. Have you been at work and uh, you hear a colleague uh, basically spreading a rumor about you? And you hear them spreading the rumor to your boss? What, what's, what's, like, jumping out of your heart right now? Wait, no, that's not right. No, I've got to defend myself. That's a rumor. Are you following what I'm saying? Right, when you hear your reputation being threatened, when somebody is saying something about you that is not right, we feel like we need to defend ourselves. It, the example of Jesus is when people were saying things about him that were scornful, when people were saying things about Jesus that weren't right, what did he do? He didn't respond. What's the next phrase in verse 23? Uh, when he suffered, and really that verb just means when he was beaten, when he was physically abused, he didn't fight back. Our culture does not train us to, to not fight back. Our culture trains us to defend our reputation, to fight back when we are unjustly treated. Instead of insulting in return, instead of threatening back, what did Jesus do? He entrusted himself 
to the judge who judges justly. And again, the stress of the verb, he did that over and over and over again. Jesus basically said, my reputation is in God's hands. My, you know, my vindication, people understanding me, that's in God's hands. Can we live like that? Uh, I'm... I'm struck with this passage often with the idea of pacifism, like the idea of non-retaliation. And, and I have to say, I'm not a pacifist. Um, I, th- I, think, I think there are just moments when we you know, defend ourselves or our nation defends ourselves. But, but look at the example of Jesus. In, instead of taking on violence and evil, using violence and evil to defeat violence and evil, instead of threatening like this, Jesus does this. Uh, in response to violence and evil. Instead of fighting against it, he absorbs it. He takes it into himself on the cross. And all the violence and, and uh, persecution and slander or whatnot that comes his way is absorbed and extinguished in, in, in Jesus' example of, of innocent suffering. That is a powerfully challenging way to be called to live out our new identity in Christ. Where I don't automatically take up my right to be understood. No, 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 you misunderstand me. No, 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 you're misrepresenting my view here, right? And it's okay to do that, but there are moments when I think we are so worried about defending our reputation um, that we lose sight of our new identity in Christ. And I think that's what Peter's getting at here, saying Jesus is the ultimate example that we are to follow. And, and, and maybe I don't need to tell you this, but uh, we fail in following this example all the time. It's, it's, it's an example uh, almost too great uh, to bear. But, but look at how the passage makes a subtle shift in verse 24. And this actually leads to the third and final point of the sermon. New identity is only possible because Jesus' innocent suffering accomplishes our redemption. So notice in verses 22, uh, 21, 22, and 23, this is an example we should follow. Like slaves and wives, they are kind of putting on this example for us as well. We're going to live out our new Christian identity in this world in difficult ways when we submit to situations that aren't to our advantage. Uh, and, and we're called to do this because Jesus is the example of doing this. He himself suffered innocently. But look at verse 24. He himself bore our sins. Notice there's like a shift in um, uh, person there. Instead of, uh, instead of you, leaving you an example, now it's our. There's a, there's a shift. Uh, and in verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for, the right, for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Whereas Jesus, yes, is the ultimate example of innocent suffering for Christians to follow, it is only because Christ's uh, suffering on our behalf that we're able to live out our new identity and to attempt to follow his example. Peter here argues that Jesus himself bore our sins so that we might live for Righteousness. Peter emphasizes specifically how Jesus bore our sins in two phrases, in his body. He, he bore our sins in his body and on the tree. Bearing our sins in his body is an explicit reference to Jesus' death, the suffering that he experienced in his body. He did that, not just as an example, but he did that to change the world and to change us to transform us. And also, uh, not only bearing our sins in his body, but he also hung on a tree, or it was on a tree. And this references back to Deuteronomy 21, where the person who hangs on a tree is bearing God's curse. Not only does Jesus bear God's curse on our behalf, quoting Isaiah 53, Peter says, by his wounds you have been healed. And continuing with the imagery of Isaiah 53, Peter reminds us of our past. You were like sheep going astray. But because of the unique work of Christ, now we have turned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Jesus, his innocent suffering, was not only an example, 
but it's the means by which we are transformed, we are saved, and we are sent into the world. Because he willingly gave himself for us, we are made whole. Uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, it's a quote in the uh, opening of the uh, worship folder. He says this, Christ was made poor that through his poverty we might be rich. He took the form of a servant that we might regain liberty. He descended that we might be exalted. He was tempted that we might overcome. He was despised that God might fill us with glory. He died that we might be saved. Here is the highlight of Peter's message. That it's because of what Christ has done, we can follow his example. This submission, let me try to pull together all of what I've said in these these two kind of ways. This, This submission to the social structures and relationships around us is a witness to the watching world. Um, when we live out our lives in a new way in these difficult situations, th- this is where a, a witness is given. L- let, me, let me try to illustrate this. I, I, I know, um, I know a, a, a woman who, in her experience, um, her husband was unfaithful to her, and there was a break in the marriage. Um, after a few years of separation, many of this woman's uh, friends who were Christians came to her and said, you have biblical grounds to divorce. You should leave uh, your husband because of the situation. She said, I, I know I'm free to do that, but I don't feel that that's what the Spirit is leading me to do. I need to remain married to my husband, even though there has been this real break in our relationship. There was no abuse going on. In fact, there was still support, mutuality. Uh, but she remained in this situation. Later on, the man contracted cancer. And when he was given nine months to live, the woman invited him back into the home, even though he still had this extramarital relationship. She nursed him to his death. And before he died, he repented and, and came to see the goodness and grace of God. It, it's just an illustration of there are times when we don't take up our rights, even though we, we could take them up. But why would we do that? Why would we experience innocent suffering like that? It's for the sake of witness. It's for the sake to put on display to the watching world how amazing Jesus is. And people are going to come up and look at you and say, why are you doing this? Why aren't you protecting yourself? Why aren't you acting in a way that I would be more accustomed to. And that's the moment where you can say, this is what my Lord did for me. Now, I, I'm, I'm keenly aware that, that, that you can take some of what's being said here in First Peter and, and abuse it, manipulate people. But I want to be very clear that, that that's not Peter's intended purpose. In fact, Peter's intended purpose is to say, this becomes a powerful witness to the world. Um, so I want to leave you with that, that notion, that not taking up our rights or submitting to these difficult situations, living out our new identity in these difficult scenarios is a witness. It's, it's a witness to the world, but it's doing something else at the same time. I full well think that Peter expects these Christian slaves who submit themselves to this difficult institution, this evil institution of slavery, as they are submitting as Christians, they are actually not only giving a witness, but they're also subtly undermining the whole institution of slavery until it becomes implausible in society. In other words, Christian submission is a way to transform society. And even Greco-Roman marriage, a woman who becomes a Christian but remains married to his, her Roman husband, That is a witness, but it also becomes a way of transforming marriage from a Greco-Roman version to the version of marriage that God had intended. Is that clear? So why do we submit? What does innocent suffering accomplish? Well, Jesus' innocent suffering accomplishes our salvation. As we follow Jesus in this kind of innocent suffering, what does it accomplish? It accomplishes a witness to the watching world. And it's a witness not from a position of power, but a witness from a position of humility and weakness. But it also, I think, 
subtly begins to transform all of society, undermines the wickedness of evil institutions such that it becomes implausible for them to continue. That takes a long time. We might never see it. I hope these words from 1 Peter are encouraging to you and challenging. And if you're not a Christian here, I hope you hear that this is the life that we are called to, to follow Jesus. But we are not left on, you know, to our own devices. It's Christ the Lord who has suffered innocently on our behalf that empowers us to live in this new way. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your word speaks this challenging message to us. And, and Lord, I... I I have struggled to understand. I have struggled to communicate this morning what, what I think Peter is helping us see. But Lord, what I'm encouraged is that this is the difficult situations of life. This is not a candy-coated uh, self-deception that life is easier than it really is. Lord, and at the center of all this is your beautiful son who is the most innocent and suffered the most. Not just leaving us an example of how we ought to also live, but, but actually accomplishing something that transforms us and our world. Lord, uh, help us. Help us to reflect on how we uh, should live out our new identity in Christ. Um, help us to think about the areas of our life, the relationships that we're in, the job that we have, the social structures that we find ourselves in. Um, some of these are hard. Some of these are, 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 are much better, much more healthy. And we're th we thank God. We thank you, Lord, uh, if we are in healthy marriages and healthy work environments and healthy social you know, situations and neighborhoods. We, we thank God for those healthy places. But even there, help us, Lord, to live out our new identity in such a way that this radically new thing called the kingdom of God is on display for others to see. And that when we encounter difficulty, we, we cling to Jesus, uh, the one who has suffered on our behalf and made us new. Lord, um, pray that this message would find its home in our hearts by your Spirit's work. Uh, we thank you in Jesus' name.